Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with Catherine McElroy, design lead in IBM's Watson team. Catherine talks about her experience at the School of Visual Arts, prototyping for hardware and software, and small ways to increase diversity. Enjoy the show. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start off, if, if you will, if you can share a little bit about you, uh, what you're currently doing, and how you arrived there at IBM. Yeah, so I... Like you said, I'm a design lead at Watson for IBM, and I've been here for about a year and a half after finishing up my MFA program in New York City. And I came into design actually through architecture. So my bachelor's degree is in architecture, Hmm. and I have a first master's degree in visual art and graphic design. So I'm just kind of this whole wheelhouse of design skills. But what I found after working in graphic design for about four or five years is that I was kind of disillusioned by all of the crap I was designing <laughs> and that it's these mailers that are going out and instantly getting thrown away or billboards that are there to distract drivers. So I wanted to go back to school to really find out how I could have impact through design. And that's exactly what I learned uh, in my MFA. And that's exactly what I do at IBM with user-centered design. That's great. So talk to me a little bit about how your studies were organized at SVA, if you will. Yeah. So I studied the MFA in products of design. And I was part of the inaugural class for that. And what really drew me to it was the faculty and the opportunity to learn from the best practitioners in New York City, uh, hands-on. So the studies were really focused around looking at each individual faculty member's design thinking process. And we had faculty from IDEO and Frog and MoMA. We studied with Paolo Antonelli, which was amazing. And we just got their firsthand view and their different perspectives. And it was so refreshing to learn so many different ways to do this and allowed me to create and understand what process worked best for me. And it also introduced me to user experience design, which is what I do now, and also electronics, which I fell in love with both of those topics. And that's really what I do for working in my spare time now. Wow. So it sounds like a very cross-discipline curriculum. Yes, it's definitely cross-discipline in the faculty and then also the students that are involved. We had students with backgrounds in economics and uh, traditional design backgrounds and all sorts. And we all worked together in group projects and it allowed us to really understand how to work with different perspectives and thrive together to build the best product for the project. That's awesome. It sounds um, it sounds like the way that many should be going. <laughs> In that it's um, it, it reflects real life in terms of working across teams, uh, working with people from different backgrounds and so forth. Exactly. And what was really nice about it is that this is one of the first programs of its kind. And now you're starting to see some more programs reflected. It's in its fourth year now. And it's really looking at product design from a new angle where it's the holistic view, thinking through how you're manufacturing it through end of life. So not <laughs> only were we dealing with Uh, design thinking, we're also trying to think through the entire system. And so it's a systems thinking program, which was really fascinating. And I, I appreciate that because I use that every day now in my in my actual work. That's fantastic. Um, Your thesis work is titled Presence, How to Use Digital Technology to Live a More Analog Life. Can you talk a little bit about your research there? And I think um, the focus being on distraction, I'm curious as to why you decided on that um, and and what you learned from it and if your thinking has changed at all since since then. 
I chose the this specific topic because it's something that I experience on a day-to-day basis. And it's a topic that has come up in a lot of different arenas. You see New York Times articles about it and a whole slew of new books discussing the distractions that our new technology is creating for us. Uh, This technology that's only been around for less than 10 years for the smartphone now takes up a good chunk of our lives and our eye time. Mm. So thinking through um, distraction and designing for attention and for focus was really interesting to me. And then when I started digging into the research, reading books like Alone Together, uh, Present Shock is a great one, The Distraction Addiction, just such interesting perspectives on it and different views on how to solve the problems. And I also spoke with a lot of different subject matter experts, uh, designers that are already thinking about this at Frog, and also really interesting different um, experts like the CEO of Human Scale, which is an ergonomics-based furniture company. Hmm. And he's thinking through furniture design that best fits the human body. And we got into this great discussion about the idea of neuroergonomics and what does the brain really want? And is distraction helping it or hurting it? And is a little bit of distraction good hmm. in a framed way? Because we we seek that out when we're in uncomfortable situations. But also how... Our websites and our social media are designed for distraction because the more page views they get, the more revenue they make on their ads. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to think through what kind of alternative revenue system do we need for these websites in order for them to then design for a different experience of focus, get the user in and out as quickly as possible uh, with the value that they need. Absolutely. It's interesting because it. Um, I was talking to Tristan Harris not too long ago, um, and he um, co-founded this organization, Time Well Spent. And we talked a little bit about, you know, distraction and the attention economy and, and how companies are looking to capture those eyeballs. Um, and so oftentimes you find designers are, are looking to design for the user's best intent, right? But it's also the business um, that you're working for, and they might have different different priorities. Um, so it's interesting to talk about distraction and attention uh, and, and the responsibility, frankly, that designers have. Um, exactly. And yeah. that's that's the point of view I have too, because some common ways to solve this problem is to unplug mm-hmm. or to have digital detoxes or technology-free vacations. You're starting to hear about those ideas come out, but that's really only solving the symptoms. And if we don't actively try to fix the, the cause of that symptom, which is our technology and how we design those experiences for our users, we're never going to have our full attention for our own use. Mm-hmm. And just think of what these people could be doing with their brilliant minds if they weren't sucked into social media so much. <laughs> There's so much more opportunity there. It, absolutely. You, you wonder, what were people doing 10 years ago? What, you know, how were they spending their time before cell phones and all of the things that are consuming? Uh, they were probably reading a lot of newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> and like, just Have you seen the picture of the... Uh, hundred years ago on the rail car and it, everybody has their newspaper and they're not talking to each other and they compare that oh. to people with <laughs> smartphones. So there's always going to be technology that's um, designed for distraction, but there's also weighing that distraction with the benefit of the interaction. Mm-hmm. So by reading a newspaper, you may be getting more actual news, actual like real events, uh, as opposed to social media, which might be just viral posts of silly videos which 
still have their benefit because they're fun. Mm. Well, you make a good point. There's always been something to distract us. It just feels as though with technology, the pull is stronger. There's a lot of, um, and, and maybe it's a perception, but the psychology and, and uh, you know, behavioral economics behind it make people a little sketched out. Um, so it's an interesting area for sure. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the talk that you're giving at the O'Reilly Design Conference on prototyping for physical and digital projects. Can you talk a little bit about um, your work here and what you plan to cover? So like you said, my talk is prototyping for physical and digital products. And it's going to be an a broad overview and introduction to prototyping with some specific implementations Mm -hmm. and also case studies. So the goal of the talk is to give really the why behind prototyping, which is to improve your product so it's more impactful and is actually uh, solving a user need instead of just something that you think is a great idea. And then also giving the audience some real um, skills and tools that they can take home to their current projects and start prototyping now. It's really a call to action to do more prototyping. That's great. Um, so how is prototyping for physical and digital different? And how are there any similarities as well? So the similarities are with within the goal of prototyping. Mm-hmm. For both physical and digital products, you're making something for an end user and you cannot assume that you are the actual user. You might be someone that uses it, but you're not the entire audience for that product. So for both of these, your goal is to get prototypes in front of other people in order to get enough feedback and insights to improve your product and make it more valuable, more impactful. And then the other thing that's very similar between the two is uh, what we call fidelity level. Fidelity means how close it looks to the final product. So what you usually want to do with this process is start with a low fidelity. So something that doesn't look as much like the the final product, but you can test specific things with it. And I'll go into detail about this in the talk. Uh, And that allows you to then slowly have this iterative cycle of building up to a high fidelity model that you really figure out all of the pitfalls for these users so that they have the best experience. And by the end, you have a product that's more intuitive. And then what's different about these two is that uh, digital prototyping is for screen-based interactions. So you're thinking about apps, you're thinking about software, you're thinking about websites. And this is all about uh, the user journey and specifically how they might not use your product in the exact way you would expect. So with software, there's lots of different ways to interact with it. And the user might not find your happy path, which is like the one best way to go through software. But there's all different links and buttons and whatnot, and they might get lost. So this gives you the ability to find those different kind of eddies of the user journey in order to help them along their way. For physical prototypes, uh, this is interesting because it's we're talking about electronics. So how do you develop um, a new wearable technology? or a different fitness tracker or something like that. And there is not only the code base, which takes a lot of debugging in order to uh, make sure that your code is working properly. There's also the physicality to it. So you have to think about the materials. You have to think about how it feels. If they're wearing it, how does it feel on the skin? If they're not wearing it, how does it fit into their lives for the end user? So there's a lot more testing around that. Um, that tactility to it also. Excellent. Excellent. So are you currently prototyping for both and what kinds of tools are you using? 
Yes. So I do mostly digital prototyping right now at my job. But in my spare time, I build different kinds of electronics and different kinds of wearables. So this is something that I use for both of them daily in my life. And for prototyping tools, what I use all the time at work, I always start with Post-its and Sharpies, just because it allows me to come up with lots of different alternative ways to lay out uh, the piece of software I'm designing. And it's low fidelity, so I can throw it away. I can test really quick. And then I slowly build out higher fidelities through programs like Illustrator and Sketch for the wireframes and for starting to do visual design, and then build out prototypes in Axure and Envision. Hmm. And those four programs kind of overlap with each other. And being able to choose which one works for a specific project is really important. So I have this whole toolbox and I can pull on what I need to, depending on the needs of the project. And then for physical prototyping, I always start with an Arduino Uno, which is a larger microcontroller, but it also pairs with a breadboard. Breadboard is pretty much a um, a plastic case that you can plug wires into and make circuits without actually having to solder anything. And that makes it really great for prototyping because you can try a lot of different circuits without uh, wasting any materials and without having to solder, and it goes very fast. And then from there, I'll move up to some of the inexpensive microcontrollers like the Trinket, which is sold by Out of Fruit, or the Arduino Mini. And both of those are very small, so they work well for wearable uh, prototypes. And they're both under $10. So it, it's very inexpensive to prototype for physical products. That's fantastic. So how did you learn how to prototype? Um, specifically, I mean, for for the um, more of the, the wearables. Yeah, I feel like I've been prototyping my whole life. So the idea of prototyping is is very common to me. Uh, it, it's the same idea of the measure twice, cut once kind of mm-hmm. mentality. But specifically for physical prototyping, I learned mostly self-taught, but during my MFA program. So I had a couple of great classes where we were focused on building electronics. And that was the first time I was introduced to it. So I've only been doing it for three years, but it's something that uh, you can learn on your own. And there are so many people with guidance out on the internet and are willing to help you. But I also uh, did a lot of troubleshooting. So there's With physical prototypes, there's so much about figuring out the code, figuring out how the different pieces will work together. Um, An example is a project I did called the Chameleon Bag, and that was pairing RFID technology. So the same kind of technology used for security badges. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just the sensing technology and RGB LEDs. And then I built it into a messenger bag. And then as you put different tagged objects into the bag, the front panel of LEDs would change color or would animate. And it was really fun, but I had to figure out how to use RFID first, figure out how to use RGB separately, figure out how they would work together. And then the whole time putting all this code together in the cleanest way possible while I was troubleshooting it. So it was a great project to really learn the process of how to test all those pieces and build it out into a final product that um, the whole goal of it is that uh, you can make sure you have all of your most important objects in your bag. Otherwise, your bag warns you that you've left your keys someplace. So it was very fun. That's awesome. I saw a picture I, on your site of that bag. It looks fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um. So beyond prototyping tools, are there other go- go-to tools that you use every day? 
So some of the tools that I use every day include my MacBook Pro because I'm designing software on it for my daily job. And my favorite software on that, beyond the creative software like Adobe Creative Suite and Sketch, um, I love using Evernote. That's how I kind of organize my head onto the screen. Um, I use Google Docs and Slack all the time. We just adopted Slack at IBM about six months ago, and I don't know what we were doing to communicate before that because it's so much easier to communicate across teams. And I work with remote teams. I've got team members in Israel, New York, Pittsburgh, and San Francisco, and it allows us to communicate really easily. And then in my personal time, I love my iPhone. Um, I have all the notifications turned off (laughs) for the distraction piece. But I do use Twitter and Instagram on that. And also an app called Headspace, which is a guided meditation app that I love. And then physically, I just have tons of notebooks and posted all around me all the time. So I'm a hand note taker too. And that helps me to really remember And uh, I love sketching. So that's how I get a lot of my thoughts and ideas out. And then finally, my final piece of like technology I love using is my camera. I have a Canon 5D Mark III and I do professional photography with that. And it's, it's like my right hand. I love using it. That's fantastic. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how you work there. So I, I think I mentioned to you that I, I've spoken to Phil Gilbert about the culture change um, that he's tasked with leading there at IBM and embedding design throughout the organization. And I'd love to hear how how it works for you. Like, I don't know if you have a typical day, but what what a day might look like for you to give people a sense of how you approach design within IBM. The culture change at IBM is probably the most interesting thing that's happening in design in enterprise level companies, I think. And it's one of the main reasons I'm here, because I see the shift from an engineering feature based uh, product design to a user centered product design across a 380,000 person company uh, to be the most challenging but most impactful uh, place that I can work. And so on a day-to-day basis, how this comes through is how we interact with our teams. As designers coming into this ecosystem, a lot of these people haven't really heard about user-centered design until they come to our uh, design boot camps here in Austin. And that's when we bring all of our product team together, uh, the business people, the engineers, and the designers to center around their product and think about it from the user's point of view. And that gives us a great opportunity to really advocate for design, to talk about the value of design, and then to bring that back into our day-to-day working environment. So we'll, we'll do empathy maps together to understand our user. We'll then use that for uh, user journeys and then find the pain points that we can start solving in order to prioritize our work together as a unified team. So I think that's what's most interesting about this. And just the fact that it's at this mind-boggling scale Like I said, it's a very large company for IBM, but our products touch millions of people and the opportunity to have an impact on those millions of people's lives. I've literally talked to people that work with older legacy IBM software. And when I tell them what I'm doing, they thank me and they're like, I cannot wait until you fix this. I use this every single day and it's not the best experience. Excellent. Excellent. So I want to shift gears slightly here talk a little bit about diversity in design. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of talk about diversity in design and tech in general. And I'm curious if you have any opinions on how to solve this problem. This is like the million dollar question for everybody, I feel like. Mm -hmm. 
there's not a silver bullet answer to this. It's going to take a lot of different approaches and solutions and a lot of different companies to really step up and start actively working against this, uh, this problem. And I'm really lucky in the place that I work because IBM is actually historically very diverse. And I'm surrounded by so many different types of people and different perspectives. And I see how that improves and is so valuable to my work on a day-to-day basis. But I do have a couple ideas for how to kind of slowly shift towards improvement Mm -hmm. because it's not something that'll change overnight. I think one of the biggest things that I see here that has helped is having an open workplace where you can really discuss these ideas and these issues because a lot of it is just people don't realize the problem because my, my husband, even when I was like trying to explain, it took a couple different tries to like shift his perspective and have him understand, put your, yourself in my shoes. And this is what like a couple small issues that I had at previous companies were. And then he finally got it. So it's just not something people think about. But being able to call out unconscious bias in a company um, will allow people to have that space to talk about it. Uh, another way to approach it is outreach to younger generations to make coding and exploration into science and electronics uh, much more fun and engaging and interactive. Instead of reading about it, they can actually do it hands-on. And that's, I tried to do outreach to bring electronics design to kids because it's just a fun thing that you sit down for a couple hours for a project and you've completed something and it gives you that that success. And we see that through a lot of different toys that are coming out. Like Little Bits is a great mm. example of a company that is doing this kind of outreach. And then I think the the other areas that can improve is actual workplace design. So making sure that the physical environment is not geared towards one specific demographic, having a variety of flexible spaces so that there's private rooms along with open offices is a great approach to that. Uh, And like ping pong and kegs are fun, but it's more (laughs) important to really make sure that everyone feels comfortable in a space and has some area of the office that they belong to. And then also the hiring practices. I, I was thinking about that because I participate in IBM's, IBM Design's hiring and recruiting process. And it's really important to make sure that gender and race and sexual orientation aren't directly affecting dis- that decision process through unconscious bias. So we try to make sure that uh, we're really looking at the work and seeing the, the person's process instead of deciding based on who the person is. So it's more about their work instead of just a culture fit. And that's one way to, those are just a few different ways to approach it. Those are all great. You know, it's interesting you bring up the workplace design because um, just walking through some large tech companies over the years, um, it it was always interesting to me to see all of these, what felt like very male-centric, right, um, designs of offices. You mentioned, I mean, not that women don't love ping pong and, you know, kegs, but um, it, it struck me as, wow, some people feel uncomfortable with this. Um, And so all of these details matter. Final question for you beyond your own work and uh, what people or projects are grabbing your attention these days? That's such a great question because it's so interesting to hear where people get inspiration from. And I get inspiration from all over the place. 
So a couple designers that I really admire and I follow their work. Uh, one is Kelly Anderson. She does so much interesting work with uh, paper-based interactions. She had this wedding invitation that was a record that would actually play uh, sound out of it. Hmm. And so I, and she has a new pop-up book that is actually a pop-up pinhole camera, which I think is awesome. So I love seeing what she does. Another designer I love is Anouk Wiprecht. And she combines fashion and technology in just really interesting ways that address um, some social issues. An example of her work is her spider dress, which is the coolest thing. It's this big piece that is 3D printed. It sits on the shoulders um, and then it has a proximity sensor. And so when somebody gets too close, all of the legs that have been like closed up that looks like a collar kind of pop out and reach out and give her the person that's wearing it more personal space. And so it's always interesting to see what she's working on. And some other places I get inspiration from include SpaceX and what they're doing with uh, pushing space exploration further and Tesla. I just appreciate the design of their cars and seeing what they do next. And also artwork. I love going to, to galleries and I just saw the Picasso exhibit at MoMA and it was absolutely phenomenal um, to see what he was doing and all of the different sculptures, which you wouldn't even think of when you think of Picasso in the first place. Um, they did such a great collection of them and such a wide variety. And then I get inspiration from my husband. He is an entrepreneur and in his spare time, he's building an experimental aircraft in our garage. So wow, I have that constant inspiration that he's building this thing that he's going to fly one day. And um, just like thousands of rivets and he's totally dedicated to it. And I love it. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Wow. Those are some interesting beyond your, you know, I couldn't go check out your husband's uh, aircraft, but actually you can because he posts um, videos on YouTube oh, of his whole process. What? So he's building an audience for building that aircraft. Oh, that's awesome. What, um, where, where can we find it? So that is at Daniel Oliver McElroy, and that's his uh, YouTube channel. Awesome. awesome. Well, I'm going to have to check all of these out. These are great. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for talking with me. Catherine is speaking at the O'Reilly Design Conference happening January 19th through 22nd. You can find out more at O'Reilly.com forward slash design con. You can reach Catherine through her Twitter handle at K.E. McElroy. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or TuneIn so you never miss an episode. <laughs>